0: Welcome to a crystal clear world of recorded music, created especially for you, the film, television and radio producer. We invite you to listen to a sound sampling of selections taken from this new and ever-expanding giant library of recordings designed for your current productions. Whether your subject matter be past or present, light or serious, drama or documentary... Hello, here we are again. EMIPM presents the music library. Um we're joined in the studio now by uh by James Asher. What I'm gonna do, um James, is what I normally try and do with everyone that comes in. I'm gonna try and announce you to one of your own pieces of music. Um it never goes well, so just bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> it goes brilliantly every time, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless. So welcome, James Asher, the uh, composer of uh, some classic library arms on Studio G, as you mentioned. On uh, you did some with Dwarf, um, with I need to check my notes again now. With Bruton, of course, um, and who also uh, composed with Pete Townsend. Been sampled by Uncle by Chemical Brothers, and uh, multi instrumentalist uh, in the world of I guess New Age, World Music uh, in that genre sure. as well. That's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for the introduction.
0: <laughs> uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Um, so I guess let's let's start at the beginning. Okay. Um, I believe you. I believe you learnt to play piano. Uh, was that your first? No, your first I, journey I started in music? with violin when with I was violin? seven, and uh, I did up to
1: about grade six, and then I was increasingly fascinated by. My father had shown me some blues on the piano, which I then expanded to taking into other improvised forms, and I also found drums extremely exciting, and uh, they somewhat took over from the violin thing, although I went on to do quite a bit of busking on violin. But
0: mm-hmm. Whereabouts would you busk?
1: Oh, uh, in the West End, and uh, anywhere we could really, along with somebody who would hand out biscuits and read Beatrix Potter. Went down quite
0: well. <laughs> Did you uh, did you make much money from that? We used did to you?
1: attract a crowd of people and eventually we'd get moved on by the police because it would be an obstruction. Uh, well. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Party one, poopers. And at one point, Tony Stratton Smith, who used to look after Keith Emerson, well, at least from media records, uh, paid for us to do a demo in Tin Pan Alley. So that was fun. Mm. Yeah. Uh,
0: and then I believe you moved into studio work uh, yeah. early on. So how how did that come about?
1: Well, I'd always been fascinated by studios and then uh, very kindly Pete Townsend took an interest in what I was doing in my early experimental stuff and lent me some equipment which I then went on to apply to creating the tracks that ended up in gyroscope, for example, on mm. Britain. Yeah.
0: And do you feel like did that sort of inform your your composing in that in that time in terms of using the studio as a as an instrument as well? I guess in terms of
1: yeah, I mean, it was all really a, a glorious magic bus ride, really for me. I mean, as long as I observed the, it's got to have a definite ending routine, which library music always requires. And mm. as long as it didn't change key or rhythmic groove too much, so, you know, the sky's the limit, really. And I certainly explored lots of different things, mm-hmm. including like a, an early Korg polyphonic ensemble, which is the, on the um, Umbrellas track, for example, which mm-hmm. is on the vinyl compilation.
0: And how, like, how did you meet Pete Townsend? How did that? I sent
1: him a tape because I was—I always loved his writing. I particularly liked his rhythm guitar playing, and his unique way of making chords non-specific in terms of whether they were major or minor, and that kind of thing, and the rhythm that went with them, and the, of course, the excitement of nutters like Keith Moon, who are just glorious uh, anarchic marvels, really. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and that led to your recording of the, the track peppermint lump it did indeed yes and so that was that was produced by pete yes um he did he write the lyrics for that as well yes he and did, he and did. he performs yes on it as well obviously uh and also it's credited to well you're the credited composer but the yeah. per- performer artist is credited as angie
1: yes she was a 10 year old girl from stage school that had been brought in so
0: and so how, how was it working on, your, I guess, your first release with a child? isn't? They always say you never work with children or... Or, or animals, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I must admit it wasn't really my express desire that it had a vocal particularly on it anyway. I'd, I'd always heard it as an instrumental, and part of what Pete had liked was the piano cascading in three and three-quarters-inch tape delay where it bounces around in a nice rhythmic form and you can play against the rhythm of that echo. Mm. And that was really what it was about for me, along with him you know strutting with his Hamer electric guitar and, and acoustic guitar, and I'd always loved that combination of having an acoustic pan one side and electric the other. And mm. I always thought he was one of the great pioneers of using stereo in a very creative and fun way. So it was great to actually get to work with someone I admired so much..
0: Mm. And that was released on Stiff Records at the time, which was a very, very pioneering and o- well, very open label as well in terms of the, the things they put out at the time.
1: Yeah, I don't think Pete was particularly in love with the way it was marketed and everything, and it all sort of went a bit off beam. But then you'd always be kind of constrained by the requirements of a commercial label in, in
0: some respects. Uh, well, let's take a listen to it now. Okay. This is uh, Peppermint Lump. That was "Keep on Working" by Pete Townsend, with uh, with yourself on drums.
1: Well, actually playing packing case. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which Pete forgot when it came to the mix, and he couldn't understand why it sounded like that. <laughs> but you can have a great idea at the time, and then a few days later, sounds different, huh?
0: Yeah, and it's uh and that was from 1980, wasn't it? I believe, and it it sounds uh it sort of reminds you of elvis costello from that time but also kind of mixed it's almost queen-esque the the operatic bit that happens yeah. in the middle
1: yeah playful stuff with the timpani and all that yeah 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 and you, uh,
0: did you do all this sort of auxiliary percussion stuff no as well, no was it, no, okay? no just kit yeah um and you also played drums on another track on that album as well I yeah believe.
1: jules and jim yeah yeah
0: um what was the experience like on on that record
1: Well, I mean, it was unusual in as much as Pete had um, dedicated a day of silence every year to Mayor Barber, the spiritual figure he followed or follows. I'm not sure if that's still ongoing. So... Uh, It was, uh, you know, strange not to be given vocal instructions and i get pieces of paper saying, go back the way you were doing it, emphasise the onbeat a bit more and that kind of thing. Mm. (laughs) So it was a bit odd. (laughs) And and everyone was busy, you know, taking the mickey because it was, you know, a bit uh, eccentric. But, you know, he's a great creative person. He's entitled to do as he wants. Mm.
0: So just for that one song that that happened on or was it? No, well,
1: it was everything that day. And Mm. uh, I think there was a few tracks that... uh, (laughs)
0: <laughs> but there was a number i guess and there was a number of musicians around that period that that found a uh a faith i guess in that way in that they it they've they often turned to it to help with creativity richard thompson and linda thompson they moved to a commune sure, uh, in yeah. the 1970s yeah um what do you think it was that that brought about that 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 need for well,
1: I mean, I suppose the world of excess is fairly close, isn't it? Yeah, the the door of uh, stardom and uh, you know, out of this world kind of uh, income coming in, there must be. It obviously helps to have some discipline that you can refer to that uh, keeps things a little bit in check. I mean, especially Mm. when Keith Moon is busy chucking TVs out the window and driving cars into swimming pools and all that stuff. It's like there has to be some kind of counterbalance, (laughs) I guess.
0: Did Keith Moon ever um did you ever meet Keith Keith Moon? No, no. I not I never did. Um and so round about that period you will have met Robin Phillips.
1: I did indeed. I consider him really my mentor and key instructor in understanding what library music is about and he was a very inspirational and encouraging and imaginative person.
0: And um how did you, how did you go about composing your first, your first release with him? Did you, because uh, I understand at the time they they often took um, pitches from composers or ideas and then sort of worked with them.
1: Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I would bring in a succession of reel-to-reel tapes, carrying them on my motorbike uh, pannier, and bring <laughs> them in and, and wheeling them on and. Uh Robin would say, lights, camera, action, here we go. Let's see what you got. And I uh, would put the tapes on and then he'd give me feedback in terms of their usability for uh, library purposes, but in such a way that I really felt stimulated to recraft things, you know, incorporating those elements. Mm.
0: And at that period as well, you were very much, uh, very much, I guess, at the forefront of technology in terms of your working with many synthesizers and different types yeah, at that period, and that was also also happened to be the time when you've got people like Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, Vangelis, uh, etc., who were, you know, they're working on films at that time. And Yeah, you know, it was a
1: very exciting era for synth, and the first time we got to hear the warmth and the scope of things like the Yamaha CS80 was really an inspiration, especially in the hands of someone like Vangelis. with uh, mm. Some of his albums were just remarkable in that respect.
0: Is that what drew you to the the instrument? Do you think, or
1: well, it was first put to me that when I was when I first caught wind of the Roland Jupiter Eight, that it was this glorious, multicolored instrument that could sound like different parts of an orchestra, and because um, it was really early days and we hadn't got into sampling per se, where you get loads of individual components, but something that could sound like in the character of, and also with mm-hmm. this very nice, warm analog sound. It it really was an inspiration in itself and a, a joy to behold, mm. and I had one of the first four in this country, so it was nice,
0: fantastic. And it must be uh, it must be very easy just to get lost in playing it without composing it, I guess, and just just making noises for a while. Yeah, and... quite.
1: Yeah, I created a lot of patches and saved them all, and then uh, Robin said, "Well, why don't you do a double album of electronic musical sound effects?" And I got a brief for sparkling water and all these other things that you know, they wanted depictions of mm. and got to be used by MasterChef as a, the ominous low drone while people are considering what's going <laughs> to oh, go yeah, on, yeah. as you see on the, the library film.
0: Yes, that's true, yeah. Um, so let's play a couple of the tracks you did for Bruton. So these are both from the album Gyroscope. Cool. Um, I'm going to play a track called Newsbeat and then a track called Umbrellas. That was Newsbeat and Umbrellas there. And as you rightly said, Umbrellas is on the uh, Live Music Film compilation as chosen by Sean Lee, who also is a presenter here on Soho Radio. Yeah, I see his name on the wall there. So yeah, He gets everywhere, that guy. <laughs> 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 Send you back for one minute. He's there? <laughs> um, in the Oliver Lomax book that, that has recently come out about Robin Phillips... Um, There's an interesting piece um, where you you talk about uh, Bruton, but you talk about Marlene, the uh, receptionist, and the influence she had uh, over the music on the library as well. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Well,
1: she was obviously a hidden pair of extra ears spotting the stuff that she thought could be good for the library, and that was the case when I brought these rather... Um, eccentric tapes uh for the which ended up being part of the album called Flash Music I've been mm. to New York and I was very excited about all the scratching and stuff and I've been up to Covent Garden and seen people body popping and really tuned into the whole vibe of that and um she was the one that I think tipped Rob in the nod that this would probably be good news to include as well so I thank her for that.
0: (laughs) She was always an additional person to win over then, I guess, to uh, (laughs) always be polite. Uh, um, But no, that's good. It's good, you know, it's nice, you know, everyone talks about Robin Phillips in such high esteem, but, you know, Marlene deserves a credit there as well. Yes, indeed, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so you also did another album for Bruton called Generation Gap. Yes. Um, which we're going to play a track from that shortly called Supercharger. Okay. Um, How did that one come about?
1: Well, this is largely me expressing the fact that I'd really like to be a guitarist when I'm not, (laughs) and especially one that was very um, pumped up by the way Pete Townsend would play guitar. So it's like a lot of tribute, if you like, to his oomph and... uh, style and I mean I have a good sense of rhythm but I've got no idea where to put my fingers and I would (laughs) usually cheat by tuning the guitar to a chord so it's just straight bars up and down Mm.
0: but hey there we go so this is James Asher, The Rock Album (laughs) Um, this is Supercharger That was uh, Supercharger, followed by Telecom on the album Commerce. Um, now, the guitar playing on Supercharger—bits of that remind me—it's it's quite Fripp-esque in parts. I think oh, it's really? got that—that's interesting. Uh, really? That real sort of texture of uh, uh it's sort of precision, but a wall of guitar noise as well at the same time, which oh. which he did very well, and um, which obviously you've done very well as well.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm (laughs) totally unaware of that.
0: (laughs) Um, And then that was followed by the track Telecom. Yeah. There from the album Commerce, which is that's all sort of business or industry related tracks, isn't it? I think that's. um, But
1: but the fun thing for that album for me was I got to play Kit in a really nice studio called Lansdowne with an excellent drum engineer called Chris Dibble Mm -hmm. and to play Thundering Toms and have them really well recorded as a drummer is as I'm sure you can uh, yeah, yeah. relate to, most gratifying. And, uh, yeah, finally, they sound like they should. Mm-hmm. So that oh, was cool.
0: nice. And that would have been with Adrian Kerridge at uh, the time.
1: Well, he was definitely the studio owner, mm. I think, but it was Chris Dibble who did mm-hmm. the engineering.
0: Yeah. Um, so one of, one of your famous library albums, I guess, is the one called Abstracts, which is, that was put out by Studio G at the time. And that has, I mean, that's it's been sampled a couple of times, some of the tracks on mm-hmm. that. But it was also, it was a double album, I believe, was it? Um, or was it originally in two? No, it was in-
1: originally one vinyl album. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, John Gale, who ran Studio G, was a very imaginative man, strangely and interestingly perhaps a Gemini, much as Robin was. But he had this... Um, scope for ideas or a feeling that you could have an interchange where it would you know he would encourage somehow you to come up with interesting stuff and then mm. and you know he had a fairly exotic and playful way of depicting his music as well because he had these animated cartoon covers which you know the downside mm. of which is that not everybody takes them terribly seriously but <laughs> they, they're again you know it's pretty in, idiosyncratic and out there and you could really mm. readily identify oh well that's a studio g album yeah so good on him for being so individual. And,
0: uh... Yeah, because I saw the original cover today and then was very confused <laughs> because <laughs> I hadn't seen it prior. And it's yeah. it, sort of a man in a flat cap, I believe. in that sort of, <laughs> it, it reminded me a bit of Andy Cap, almost. Right, but, right. Um, but very sort of an ornate sort of illustration on it. But yeah, I hadn't seen it prior to today. Right. Um, what well, for the commerce... <laughs> No, that's for the Abstrokes. abstracts oh, gotcha. studio G album. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, what's the cover on iTunes then? That's one that came later. Yeah, or so that's like it's like a black and white, but it says yeah. abstracts. But again, it's another drawing. I was going to say, yeah. I thought that was the original cover. But no, there's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're going to play two tracks from that album a track called Heavy Train, um, which. This one was actually sent to me by a, a composer that I'd been working with who, um, after after we talked through library and what, what he was going to do, he then uh, played it to me on his phone. It was just like, I want to do something like this. <laughs> <laughs> How bizarre. <laughs> um, and we're also going to play a track called Asian Workshop as well. As sampled by the Chemical Brothers. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, this is Heavy Train. Heavy Train and Asian Workshop there, um, both in the album Abstracts. And there's a, a what a two-bar part of that 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 uh, Chemical Brothers sampled, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later on. But it's it's you know, you'll blink and you'll miss it bit in the song that when right. you hear it, you're like, oh, I know that. And then it, it goes again, doesn't it?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Um. So the next part, I guess, the next part of your career after you know doing these Library albums was round about I think it's nineteen is it nineteen eighty eight when you released your first sort of solo album commercially.
1: Yeah, in partnership with John Gale of Studio G, we set mm. up a commercial label called Lumina. Because I was disenchanted with the quality of some of the new age stuff that went on in this country and I thought it'd be nice to have a bash at seeing if that couldn't be a bit better.
0: Mm. Uh and then that set you on the path of of recording um a lot of new age music world music and it it's a, there's a, a, a lot of crossover between those areas um what yeah. was it what was it that drew you in to to that type of music
1: i mean, i think it's a little hard to say really in the initial instance but um i was i'd been experimenting a lot and it, it just seemed to be a, a natural home where that music could have a life and didn't necessarily just have to support the identity of what other sort of visual products it was supporting something that I didn't think was any reason why people shouldn't enjoy listening to it in its own right. And Mm -hmm. I was still, at that stage, completely unresolved in whether I wanted things to be up-tempo and danceable, as in Celebration, which we we might get to later, whatever, Um, and including a sax player who I'd heard playing on the tube who I thought was really good. Mm. Uh, or the more sort of meditative, multi-layered, cyclical things like the Great Wheel title track. Mm. And I was lucky that when we put the album out, it got picked up by Music West, which was the number three New Age music label in America at the time, and had huge profile in the stores because they had Deep Breakfast by Ray Lynch, which was mm-hmm. number one in the New Age Billboard chart for two years. So it was good to be in the company of that and certainly gave me a good leg up in the... You know having a profile in America at least
0: yeah, and it was and it still is a huge market over there for for music and for for television in that style, I guess it kind of coincided with I guess cable television and it the widening of the net of those more niche channels becoming national, yeah um allowing those um those people in those niche groups to then feel part of a much wider group, which then only spreads and spreads, doesn't it yeah. Um, and uh, what what artists at that time would you have said were your contemporaries in that type of music? Because it, it was quite, I guess, during the 1980s, world music was starting to world music as we call it was starting to become um, n- more noticed, I guess, by mainstream media, and was also adopted by some of the more indie music communities, like bands like Dead Can Dance had, sure, had, had done yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot my question. Well, no, you, you <laughs> asked who were my contemporary...
1: I mean, so Jean-Michel Jarre was obviously yes. somebody that had a very distinctive voice and a real kind of recognisable and identifiable vibe that a lot of people, you know, got and mm. enjoyed. Um, and Vangelis, of course, was the, the master of... These extremely sort of grand and wonderful, very uh, evocative um, things. So, I mean, these were all people who are inspiring. But I mean, there's there's always been a lot of good people coming up with imaginative ideas. So mm. uh, many who's you know won't necessarily be remembered by name, but it's just for the enthusiasm of what you could do with the technology and how it could surprise you if you went out on a limb and tried something out. And mm. thought, what, what happens if? And then you get delighted sometimes.
0: Yeah. Um, And it started to have more of a focus again in music in that there was a compilation put together by Light in the Attic Records, I think two years ago, which was like a a double-disc compilation of American New Age musicians from the 1980s, the late 70s, 1980s. Uh, it's a fantastic record, and it's like you, you just start to discover other people through it, sure. like, um, yeah. someone Joanna Brook from America who's, who's fantastic that like discovered through that. and so there's another, there's, like, there's a focus on it again now, I think, in that way. I think there's always the need for people in music to to discover this patch of undiscovered music, and we've seen it in live music. And I think it's happening in this. In this. And there'll be
1: also elements of kind of jazz moving in, in and out. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I know jazz was always the cardinal no no in my early instructions about libraries. <laughs> I don't do libraries, I don't do jazz. So. But uh, I mean, John McLaughlin, for example, yes. and his imaginative integration of guitar effects and then really incredible drumming and energy and all of that is, you know, equally part I see of this, what I was influenced by. Mm-hmm. Visions of the Emerald Beyond, or something. It's a phenomenal track, for example. Yeah. Whole.
0: Well, let's take a listen to a track from, from that debut LP of yours. This is a track called Celebration. Celebration and send in the drums. And celebration, you were saying, James, that the sax player was you met met busking on I, the I, tube. No, I was. <laughs> I
1: lived near Olds Court at the time, and and I heard this echoing sax from down the escalator, and I went to find out who it was, and it was this guy, Andrew Milnes. And I thought, well, I've got to record him because he sounds awesome. That's and, pretty, <laughs> uh, that's Would you mind?
0: <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's the sort of how I imagined busking used to happen, that occasionally someone would come up to you and ask you to do something. But um, I always feel like that doesn't happen as much anymore. Right. Well, maybe, it, it maybe, maybe it should. Maybe we should go scouting. Maybe I need to start busking. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and so you, you, you've you just had a new album out as well, very recently. Yeah, Drum Distillery. Yeah. And, uh, and it sounds great. Thank you. How's that been going down?
1: Good, and this is co-written with my friend and long-standing co-writing partner, Arthur Hull, who's uh, one of the leading lights in the drum circle movement in America and written three books on the subject and is kind of a playful king elf who brings out the the fun side of people Mm. in in a very engaging way. It's been fantastic to see him at work bringing out that fun. (laughs) And he does that for me, so
0: and how do you how do you work together on that are you are you going over to the u s or
1: no each year he does a tour involving normally a teaching part of it, which is in Scotland, after which he comes down and spends a week to ten days or so with me and we 've been doing that now for fifteen years and we've got whatever it is five or six albums and a few e p s and mm. It's always just a a really fun journey without barriers, really. And uh, sometimes it will be really ambient and spacey and other times it will be... We did an album of play-along rhythms for people to have fun drumming along to. And, um, yeah, I mean, however the mood takes us. And it's fun (laughs) to have a co-creative spirit to, you know, join in with that.
0: Definitely. Um, Last two tracks we're going to play... Um, well, last two tracks we're going to play connected uh, with yourself is um, a track by uh, James Vell as Uncle called Eye for an Eye, which um, is one of his big tracks. I think he was opening his his tour, his last tour last year with this track, actually. Really? Wow. So it's a sample example.
1: Yes. (laughs) And, And a track that all started with me exploring what you could do with an acoustic guitar when you shove it through a Marshall time module. Uh, and the wonderful textures you then find you are getting and stuff. And again, as a non-guitarist, trying to surprise myself by getting something out of the instrument.
0: Mm. And this was from—is this again from when you were a tape hop and you had spare time here yeah. and there and could but, play around with the equipment? Yeah, this and... was
1: in R.G. Jones Studios. Yeah, right. a... Very cool. Uh,
0: and then we're also going to play the Chemical Brothers, um, which we we mentioned before, which is a track called "The Sunshine Underground," which samples. Um, Asian Workshop that's the one, Asian Workshop, which we played from the Abstracts album. So how did you how did you hear both of these tracks the first time?
1: Uh, Well, the first I knew of the Chemical Brothers thing was John Gale who was the publisher, ringing me and saying, they're these strange people called the Chemical Brothers who want to use a (laughs) bit of your track Um, so that was the first I heard of that and um, kind of similar with the um, Fairground Ghost, which then became the Uncle track and it, it's quite amazing really how the same piece of music can be reconceived so differently by different people, I mean when yeah. John Gale called it Fairground Ghost, he was obviously hearing something quite sort of haunting and strange, about, probably because of the Marshall time module, and then James Laval gives it a, a different context, and uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how things can be given different slants and then go very different ways
0: yeah. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, here's Eye for an Eye. And, yeah, thank you very much for coming in and joining us, James. It's a pleasure. And uh, this is Uncle.
1: Even now in heaven, there were angels carrying savage weapons.